Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Maysoon Zayed is an actress, comedian, and disability advocate who has attracted more than 16 million views to her 2013 TED Talk, I Got 99 Problems, Palsy is Just One. A decade before that, Zayed co-founded the New York Arab American Comedy Festival. Her other past credits include contributing to MSNBC's Countdown with Keith Olbermann, appearing in the Adam Sandler movie You Don't Mess with the Zohan, and headlining the Arabs Gone Wild Comedy Tour. In 2019, she recorded an audible original audiobook, Find Another Dream, and she recently fulfilled her lifelong dream by landing a gig as a recurring character on the longtime ABC soap opera General Hospital. She connected with me via Zoom during the coronavirus pandemic to check in, so let's get to it! So, uh, Maysoon, uh, last things first, how are you? I oscillate between being extremely creative and productive and just being like batshit bonkers about to run through the streets naked. <laughs> well, you can't... I'm a, I'm a touring stand-up comic who usually travels 200 days a year. So the first week was fun because I caught up on all the TV I wanted to see. And I don't sleep. I only sleep three hours a night. So I wasn't like, hey, I get to be lazy. But by like day peanut butter, which is today, I am just bored. I mean, just really bored and super sick of what we're doing right now. Zoom. Yes. Because like I have to put a bra on and that's just so much work. And so, you know, my publicist is trying to keep me hustling throughout the pandemic. And I'm like, do I have to put a bra on for real? No, you don't. I, oh, you do. Oh, you do. You do. <laughs> I'm from Jersey. I'm not trash. <laughs> so, uh... Let me ask you this, as a comedian with, with CP, with cerebral palsy, did your parents, did they encourage you to watch the facts of life when you were no. a kid? No, uh-uh. My parents didn't encourage me to watch anything. They did not monitor my TV viewing at all, so I curated my playlist. And it was like General Hospital, I Love Lucy, The Flintstones, Shirt Tales, and Life Goes On. With Corky. Okay. Yeah. So you did get to watch Corky, but... But, but Jerry- I, watched, I watched The Facts of Life, and I talk about this in my Audible book, Find Another Dream, which is available right now if people are bored. Um, I talk about this in the book, but when I saw Jerry on Facts of Life, I had no idea that she and I had the same disability. I didn't identify with her at all. I identified with Joe who was like the tough girl on the show, which is hilarious because there was nothing tough about me. I was like a dancer and very like floofy as a kid, but I love Joe. So I actually had no idea that like Jerry had cerebral palsy. I didn't realize that Jerry Jewell had cerebral palsy until Deadwood. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's well, that's acting. Well, it was just, I didn't see myself in her. Okay. And then by the time I got to Deadwood, I knew I had CP. I knew she had CP. And I was like, damn, mm-hmm. she's awesome. She's fierce and she has longevity, you know. How did you end up going to Arizona State of all places? 
So I went, you have to, you really have to listen to the book because that story's in there too. Um, I got like a mega scholarship to ASU. So I got into NYU, I got into Princeton, I got into Columbia, and I got like half rides to all those schools, whereas ASU, I basically was putting money in the bank. And so I went and became a sun devil. And my parents' theory was that the heat and the flat surfaces would be good for the cerebral palsy. Arizona State has an incredibly, incredibly flat campus. There's really no hills or valleys. It's in a valley. And because you don't have to battle rain or snow, just, you know, like 115 degree temperatures. So I don't know how they thought that would be good for me. But I went out to ASU wearing black jeans and a black Metallica Guns N' Roses t-shirt and had like big hair, don't care. And the hairspray melted down my face and burned my eyes and I put on a sundress and never looked back. (laughs) And the second I graduated, I ran back to Jersey. I could not wait to get out of Arizona, but I went back 20 years later and became the guest comedian in residence. So I'm a proud sun devil to this day. Well, uh, the reason I asked me soon is because I lived there for a few years. I was uh, a reporter at the Arizona Republic. Nice. From 2001 to 2004. And I spent a lot of time at the Tempe Improv, which is across the street from from Sun Devil Stadium, so. I spent no time at the Tempe Improv because when I was at ASU, I was an acting major and I was a drama queen. So I had traditional weeping spots where I would weep at certain different places at campus to see if I was convincing, and I was. So I didn't spend any time in the comedy clubs. I was too busy dying again. What was your favorite weeping spot in Tempe? My favorite weeping spot is if you go to Arizona State University's campus, they have a Museum of Fine Arts. And it has this incredible pink marble staircase that reflects differently in the sun. So sometimes it's pink, sometimes it's purple, sometimes it's gray. And so you could have all different crying moods depending on where the sun was beating down. Oh, very nice. <laughs> I, I would have I picked their, their Tempe Town Lake. Weeping, weeping in a lake is a whole nother level of weeping. It's not enough foot traffic there. So, so tell me about your first stand-up comedy experience. It was great. So I was in Utah hanging out with my best friend, like most Muslim girls from Jersey do. And we were at a Thanksgiving, um, like party at her future husband's house. And I was just like holding court. I was telling stories with no intention of being funny. And they were like cracking up. So I had talked to my acting teacher about how no one would cast me because Hollywood shuns people with disabilities. And she recommended I do a one-person show, which sounded awful. So I started watching other one-people shows and I saw John Leguizamo's and I was like, oh. If I have to do it, I want to do it that way. The Mormons thought I was funny. Why don't I sign up for a comedy class? And I literally walked into Caroline's Comedy Club on Broadway, signed up for a six-week class. My teacher was an amazing dude who's gone now, but he's an amazing dude named Mike Irwin. And he put us on stage from the very first day. From the very first day, he made us get up in class on stage. And then by the end of the first week, he had given us a list of open mics to go to. 
So I started going to the, these open mics, one that was run by my friend Enzyme, and one at the duplex on Christopher Street that was run by Poppy Kramer. And by the end of the six-week class, the final show was at Caroline's. And I actually have a VHS tape of that Caroline's show, my first performance ever, which I can never, ever share because I thought I was Eddie Murphy and Andrew Dice Clay, and I used a lot of slurs, a lot, like Paula Dean wouldn't know what to do with me. Because, you know, that's how it was back in the day. That can be a common mistake for young comedians. They think you need to be No, but this was also literally, I literally started doing stand-up comedy January of 2000, right? 20 years ago. So at the time, it wasn't even a mistake. It was what all the big guns did. Slurs were just different back then. You know, I used the R word. I used the F word. I used, I was smart enough not to use the N word. Even then I knew I was out of my lane. But yeah, I mean, I loved, love slut shaming people. One of my original jokes at my first show ever was about the Virgin Mary. So I thought I was like edgy. Um, <laughs> I might have to actually digitize it just to show people how awful of a human being I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shows how much growth you've had now. Yeah, totally. Totally. And like, I've always come clean about it so that if I ever get hired to like host the Oscars, nobody's going to dig up anything because I was like, hey, folks, I was a douche before 2004. Sorry. <laughs> I woke up and learned one day. Well, you, I know you talk about how, how 9-11 also shifted, shifted your comedy viewpoint and how that led you to starting the New York Arab American Comedy Festival with Dean Obadala. Yeah. Uh, what was that first year's festival like? Amazing. We're so lucky. We had no idea how much work it took to put on a festival. And we had volunteers who were willing to like get yelled at and do everything we needed. And we sold out and it was like a huge success. And so many people from that first year went on to do like incredible things. Like my friend Omar Mitwelli is in the new Born Identity series on USA. Our friend Rami is now starring on Hulu on Rami. My friend Willie Deswader is doing this great like other Hulu show called Babylon, like Baghdad, something like that. I should know the name of his show to plug. I feel bad. Um, but it was amazingly, amazingly successful. And it's actually been quite successful year after year. But the first year, we were like trying to convince our Arab friends that they were funny because my generation didn't have a lot of artists in it because a lot of Palestinians or Arabs in America are from immigrant families. And when right. you're from an immigrant family, you have to be a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. So Dean's actually a former lawyer. I didn't have the coordination to be a doctor, so they let me become a comedian. But when we started, there weren't a lot of people out there. And now 20 years later, we have to turn people away because there's such incredible talent in the community. And there's a whole generation that came up watching us, you know, and watching the Axis of Evil and watching Muslims are coming and, and seeing Arabs in a positive light and, and pursued acting and comedy. You mentioned Rami Youssef. He won the Golden Globe this year for him. I know. How much does that valid? And he's, you know, a Muslim kid from New Jersey, just, just like well, you. How does that? 
I met, validate everything I, you've been working for? I met Rami when he was still a teen and he was attending Rutgers University and he actually came to audition for the New York American Comedy Festival. And he walked in and we immediately knew he was a star. We're like, that kid's a rock star. He's really talented. It doesn't validate anything. It makes me bitter. I've been in the game for 20 years. I can't even get cast on the show. And this little baby who's like my kid brother is winning Golden Globes and getting Marja Ali on this show. Now, I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of him. I love Rami and I love the fact that Steve Way has such a positive disabled role yes. on that show, authentically played by a great comedic actor. Um, so I couldn't be happier except for the part about being a bitter old washed up teacher at ASU. <laughs> I think you're selling yourself too short. No, um, I, I, I mean, I'm 20 years in. I've never been cast on anything until May of 2019 when I finally got cast on General Hospital. I, sold, I you, sold two shows last year and neither made it to air. But you say finally get cast on General Hospital as if that wasn't your lifelong dream to be was, on General Hospital. It was, it was my lifelong dream to be on General Hospital. It's great to have it be a reality. But like also, you know, I've been trying to be a co-host or a guest co-host on The View for 20 years. Mm. That hasn't come to fruition. I haven't gotten my two to three minutes on late night television. That is really, you know, it's, it, I, considering how much I've done in my career, like how much I've really done in my career, the fact that I'm still shunned by television is fascinating to me. So yes, it's a huge coup to get the role on General Hospital, but it's inexplicable that I don't have a Netflix special. I mean, everybody loves Hannah Gatsby, and I was Gatsbying before she Gatsbyed. <laughs> and I mean, she's fantastic. I'm not tearing down anyone else. I'm just saying... It's definitely difficult being a woman in comedy. It's difficult being a woman of color in Hollywood, and it's almost impossible being a disabled person. We're 20% of the population. We're only 2% of the images you see on TV, and 95% are played by non-disabled actors. So we're, like, up against a lot. And that's why it's so incredible to see not only Rami succeeding and creating such high-quality content, but also including... Steve and having like amazing disability representation. You talk a lot about, you know, I talk you, a lot, <laughs> you know, you talk a lot about your, <laughs> your, your father's mantra about, you, you know, can you, you, yes, you can, can. Yes, you can, can. And that was one of the two shows that you sold. That one was for ABC. Yes. What do you, I want to ask you a lot about that, but, but before I do, what do you tell yourself 20 years into comedy to keep yourself can canning I love doing comedy it's not hard for me to keep going like the the rejection that should break me doesn't even register because when I'm not being rejected I'm doing like shows for 6,000 people with Pitbull or I'm like you know at a college still making 21 year olds laugh hysterically even though I'm like ancient you know and and I'm I'm writing and creating stuff I love like Right now, I'm writing a, a comic book series for 10 to 12-year-olds with, like, a giant publisher who I'll be able to announce in, like, probably a month. Everything's off schedule. It was supposed to be on Valentine's Day, but I'll announce it soon. But, like, a giant, giant publisher. And so the wins outweigh the losses. 
I'm just keenly aware of the fact that anyone else with my career would be further along than I am. And it, you know, it's, it's real. It's real. Was, was, I mean, like you met my publicist. Danny Delaney is the greatest publicist in the game and he can't get me a three minute stand up bet on Colbert from home. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's all like low level right now, and I still right. can't get it. <laughs> well, I would say, like you mentioned, not getting on the view. That might be a blessing in disguise. No, it's definitely not. That's like the literally the best job a woman could have on American television after Good Morning America. It's mm. better than the Today Show. Getting getting yelled at by by Whoopi, or uh, I don't think I'd be getting yelled at by Whoopi, honestly. <laughs> I do not. So was was Can Can was that the first or the second show you sold? Can Can was the first show that I sold and I learned a really important lesson that you always have to have an entertainment lawyer because mm. I didn't and uh, I allowed my producer to convince me that since it was my first show I needed a head writer instead of writing my own show. And I was led to believe that the head writer and I would collaborate. And instead, the head writer completely 100% shut me out. And she was not Muslim and she was not disabled. Hmm. So the result was she wrote a very, very unfunny, extremely offensive, incredibly inspirational porn show um, that I would never do. And ABC holds no responsibility they did absolutely nothing wrong. They were incredible and supportive. And I wish I could have that chance back so they could have seen my potential. Um, but unfortunately, the entire thing crashed and burned because on the very last phone call, um, one of the people on the call asked a very simple question. And my response was, the reason you can't hear my voice in this piece is because it's been hijacked by a non-disabled, non-Muslim writer. And the result is inspiration porn. I will never say a single word that was written on this page. Are we still making a show? And they were like, bye. <laughs> I mean, like, literally, I felt the oxygen get sucked out of the room. And it was such an interesting moment because it would have never happened had it not been for Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle walked away from a $50 million show because they wouldn't let him do the comedy that he knew he could do. They wouldn't let him perform at the level that he could. And I was not going to go in there and perpetuate the image of, you know, this loser disabled chick that can't get anyone to love her because she's disabled. And, you know, I literally at one point had a producer say to me, if she's too successful, she'll make normal people feel bad. So the second show is What was the second show? The second show was called Sanctuary and it didn't make it to screen because of a series of unfortunate events. The company that we sold it to merged with another company and then it just like fell by the wayside. So we're we were actually going back out to sell it the week of March 1st and then had to postpone the meetings due to the pandemic and I'm super excited about Sanctuary. It's a collaboration with an amazing director named Nancy Savoco. She did Dogfight with River Phoenix and Lily Taylor, If These Walls Could Talk with Demi Moore and Cher. And she was one of the first women to win uh, a Sundance Directing Award. And I play, I'm um, co-creator 
co-writer, co-producer, and star. And I play a high-powered Wall Street lawyer who gets sucked into the gritty world of immigration. But it's a comedy, like in the vein of MASH. And the character is not written as disabled. She's disabled because I am. So that's really fun. Like if anyone else was playing her, it wouldn't be disabled. So as soon as, as, soon as the quarantine lifts, you're going to be out there pitching. Uh, we're actually pitching during the quarantine. We're doing virtual meetings. I have one on tax day. Okay. Yeah, which makes me be like, why do people make me fly out to California all the time and spend $5,000 on flights, hotels, and, you know, car rentals when I could have done this virtually? This actually shows you better what my screen presence is. But it's going to be hard because when I pitch, I do, like, full Kardashian, like, hair, makeup, clothes, cleavage, the whole nine yards. And now I have to do that all by myself. And instead, I just kind of come out like a creepy doll. Like something from Day of the Dead. That's a completely different show. Yeah, completely different show. So you're, you know, as we said, your childhood dream was to be on General Hospital. How did, how did, how did that come to fruition? So for 20 years, anytime I was interviewed by Queen Latifah, Meredith Vieira, anyone, BBC, anyone who interviewed me, I would always say my dream in life was to be on the daytime soap opera general hospital. So finally, Mark Teschner, the casting director, came across a clip where I was talking about general hospital. And he reached out to me and offered to give me a tour of the studio. And I was like, I don't want a tour of the studio. I want to be on general hospital. And he's like, okay, I, you know, I'm going to pitch you a couple of years passed by and the executive producer of general hospital reached out to me, Frank Valentini. And he invited me out and he was like, if you were on the show, what would you want to do? And we had a long conversation about like what I wouldn't want to do. Um, I'm, I'm making soap history because I cannot be miraculously healed. So that's been fun. Um, and and then uh, Frank gave me a chance. It went incredibly well. And now I'm a recurring character. I play Zara Amir, a lawyer with a shady past that always wins. What was your first day on set like? It was like a dream come true that was so much better than anything I had ever dreamed. Like I couldn't have even envisioned how perfect and amazing it was. Like I had Sean from wardrobe come and like fit me with these like Jimmy Woo, James Wu dresses like Michelle Obama and Bobby did my makeup and Nikki did my hair and I looked like a real soap star. I stepped on set and I saw like Steve Burton who plays Jason Morgan, who's like one of my favorite actors. I got to share scenes with like two of the Best women in daytime, Nancy Lee Gron and Caroline Hennessy. So they paired me with like two incredible veteran lawyers because my character is also a lawyer. And it was just really fun. But my second uh, visit to General Hospital was the best because they put me up against Maurice Bernard, who plays Sonny Corinthus, the mob boss on General Hospital. And, you know, 15-year-old me, would run home, well, limp quickly home from school and turn on General Hospital. And I had like a huge, huge crush on Sonny. And, you know, to be standing there 25 years later acting opposite him was incredible. And he's a very cool, generous Marlon Brando of daytime who has done 
incredible work on invisible disabilities and mental health issues. So if you're a lawyer with a shady past, does that, um, does that rule out the possibility that you could have an evil twin? No, I definitely, I, I think I am the evil twin. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think I am the evil twin because twinning can cause cerebral palsy a lot. And there's a character on the show named Sam who looks like a non-banged up version of me. Like I'm the, <laughs> I'm the buckled version of her. No, when I say that she has a shady past, I mean none. So like my history is completely unwritten. Oh. I don't know if she has a mystery child if she's an evil twin, if I'm the daughter of someone really important, like Luke Spencer left behind somewhere in, you know, in Palestine. There's a Turkish kid on the show that kind of looks like me. I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, I literally don't know because it's not written. I know nothing. And, uh, and um, the studio is dark. So they filmed for, they, they filmed weeks and weeks in advance but they've gone dark for four weeks. And now on Fridays, they're doing like best of flashback episodes so that they don't run out. I hope we can get back on set before we run out. But General Hospital has been on television for 57 years. So, Well, I, I sincerely appreciate you talking to me during the General Hospital hour. I know. I was like, really? Did he really pick three o'clock? But um, I work with my typist from nine to 11 and one to three on my comic book. So I tell people that I'm free after three. Um, so your listeners can find me at www.maystoon.com. Like the month of May is coming soon, maystoon.com. And if they go to maystoon.com, they can see all the virtual shows I'm doing during the pandemic. And um, also podcasts like this. It's so funny. I always tell my publicist, no podcasts. So as soon as the pandemic started, I was like, anyone who wants to interview me for a podcast, do it now or forever hold your peace. Because once I'm free, you'll never hear me again. Um, <laughs> but on maysoon.com, there's a page for Beyonce the cat so they can see my cat. There's links to my Instagram, my YouTube, my Facebook, and my Twitter. Um, the, if you want to book me for an event, if we're ever free again, or if you want to book me virtually, that info is there. Well, thank you so much, Mason. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to learning more about your General Hospital character's shady past. I think you should also listen to Find Another Dream. I think it would answer a lot of your questions. <laughs> well, get her book. Get her book on Audible. Thank you so much. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.